The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. For decades, Noam Chomsky has been one of the world's most trenchant critics of American foreign policy and of global inequality. The 92-year-old author and academic first rose to fame as one of the 20th century's foremost thinkers on linguistics and cognition, laying the foundations for how we now understand how language works. But in parallel with his rise to academic fame, he also became known as a radical political thinker and an opponent first of the Vietnam War and subsequently of the way the US uses its hegemonic power overtly and covertly around the world. Last week, he addressed the Irish Institute of European Affairs, and immediately afterwards, he joined me from his home in Arizona to discuss some of his thoughts on international and domestic US politics in 2021. Our conversation covered everything from the truths told by Donald Trump to the morality of Ireland's tax regime, and whether the human race is capable of avoiding the twin catastrophes of global warming and nuclear war. Noam Chomsky, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. Could I ask you, first of all, about a recent, what seemed pretty significant event, the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan after almost 20 years in that country? Given everything that you have written about the way the United States uses its power around the world, what's your view on how that intervention finally came to an end and what it might mean? Well, the United States usually has a strategic purpose in carrying out its military actions around the world. We may like them or not like them, but at least there's some rationale to them. That was not true of the invasion of Afghanistan. The invasion of Afghanistan, probably the best explanation of why the United States did it, was given by the leader, the most respected leader of the anti-Taliban, Afghan resistance, which was functioning well at the time. Abdul Haq had a long interview with, published in The Guardian, middle of October 2001. He was asked, uh, why did the United States invade? He said, well, the United States knows they're going to kill a lot of Afghans. They're going to undermine our efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within, but they don't care. They want to show their muscle and intimidate everyone. That's probably the right answer. It was pretty much verified by Donald Rumsfeld, the US Secretary of Defense. Uh, The Taliban very quickly offered total surrender. Just surrender. Let us go back to our villages and forget it. Of course, that would mean that the U.S. would have bin Laden and al-Qaeda in their hands. Rumsfeld's answer to the surrender offer was, we do not negotiate surrenders. Okay, That was confirmed by President Bush. We don't negotiate surrenders. We're going to use force and violence for no special purpose. It has nothing to do with bin Laden or al-Qaeda. If they wanted to pick him up, 
police action would have worked, probably with the cooperation of the Taliban who were eager to get rid of him. But no, we want to show our muscle and intimidate everyone, which is exactly what happens. It's been happening right now in the South China Sea. What is the purpose of the sending a fleet of advanced nuclear submarines to Australia, which then get, get folded into the U.S. Naval Command and are even operational, but just compel China to ask to develop its own military forces further to counter this new threat in addition to the many others. Can you find a strategic purpose in that? Well, I wonder then, um, some observers, I'm not sure what you make of this, see a direct connection in some ways between the foreign policies of the Trump and the Biden administrations, although they, they're they obviously very different in some ways, both in their manner and their presentations to the world and in other ways, but that, that there's a kind, been a kind of a continuity in American foreign policy in recent years, which marks a break with the, the multiple direct military interventions of the last 25 years and a refocusing on, as you've just mentioned there, the contest for power and possibly for supremacy with China. There's a, a shift in focus as world affairs shift. So now the challenge to US global dominance is China. So you shift to China. But the policies remain basically the same. After all, it's the same policy making group that's forming the policies. There are some variations. So under George W. Bush, the so-called neocons, neoconservatives, had a much stronger voice. So you had the invasion of Afghanistan to show our muscle, invasion of Iraq, plans to go far further, openly declared plans, which had to be held back because it all turned into such a disaster. Uh, that's the neocons. On the other hand, it's not all that different when you move to the Democrats. So uh, under Clinton, for example, uh, or take say Obama who followed them, he pretty much maintained the same policies. Although there was a shift. Instead of sending special forces to break into people's homes and smash them up and recruit for the Taliban, as was being done immediately after the invasion. Let's shift to killing them with drones, more polite. Uh, so greatly escalate the drone attacks, recruit for the Taliban by bombing a village, smashing up whatever's there, uh, killing a family uh, so that the husband will join the Taliban. That's Obama, but uh, Trump, extended further, far, greatly extended the use of drones and bombings, uh, withdrew uh, any effort to uh, determine who was being killed. So it's a more vulgar, harsh version of it. It's not going to continue in other ways. Uh, Biden's withdrawal, remember, was Trump's withdrawal. President Trump in February 2020 made a deal with the Taliban, totally ignoring the Afghan government. They were brought into it, even informed. Uh, the deal was to 
that the United States would pull out in May 2021, worst possible time, beginning of the fighting season, essentially with no conditions. Taliban were told you can do whatever you want. Just don't fire at American troops. That won't look good for me. Now, that was the February 2020 deal. You look at the Republican webpage, hailed it, hailed it as stark achievement by our great leader. That remained on the Republican Party webpage until about two months ago when Joe Biden carried out a, an improved version of this with at least some conditions and delaying it to a better version than Trump's. As soon as it turned into a debacle, it was re- the statement was removed from the Republican webpage and they turned to denouncing the Biden administration and the generals. You probably saw the hearing where the irate Republicans were denouncing General Milley for carrying out a better version of what they had called a historic achievement of their great leader up until a month ago. This is carrying shamelessness to some new level. And it's another sign of the collapse of what used to be a political party. It's transitioned to a radical insurgency that's moving to turn the country to autocracy. And and I might ask you further about that in a moment, but actually in relation to that too, can I also ask you, there was there was a moment in, I think it was in 2017, when then President Trump was being interviewed on Fox News, and Bill O'Reilly put it to him that Vladimir Putin was a, was a killer. And Trump responded as follows, there are a lot of killers. You think our country's so innocent. And that caused a lot of blowback against Trump. But in a way, he was going halfway down a road which you have charted in terms of your critique of the way that America uses its so-called moral exceptionalism to justify all kinds of bad actor behaviour in the in in the foreign policy sphere, except he was drawing exactly the opposite consequence because he was seeing it as a charter for power to be untrammeled and for the powerful to do whatever they want to the weak. Yeah, that's his policy. But it was a good statement. I praised him for it. In fact, Trump is famous for the fact that every word that came out of his mouth was a lie. Uh, Journalists counted up, you know, 30,000 lies. But occasionally there were true statements that sneaked through. One of them was that one. There were others. He once pointed out, frankly, that uh, the Republican Party could never win a free election. That's correct. The Republican Party almost always loses the popular votes and manages to gain power by various forms of trickery. Trump was quite right. Even the worst, the most committed liar may by accident come out with true statements now and then. And this was one. Yeah, are we so innocent? No, we're not. In fact, the United States is one of those rare countries, maybe only country, that's been at war, almost always aggressive war, from the first moment of its founding. Uh, One of the reasons for the American Revolution was that the British wouldn't permit the colonists to go beyond the eastern range of mountains into the country of the Indian nations. The British didn't want that kind of problem on their hands. 
colonists were not accepting that. Certainly not great land speculators like George Washington uh, or the backwoodsmen who wanted to go further into the Indian territories. Uh, well, as soon as the British were thrown out, the colonists immediately began aggressive war against the Indian nations. Went on constantly right through the 19th century. In fact, if you look at American diplomatic histories, nobody would say it today, but 40 years ago, one of the main diplomatic histories, Thomas Bailey said, uh, after the British were removed, the colonists could con concentrate on their task of felling trees and Indians and extending to their natural borders. Okay, that was standard doctrine and rhetoric in the 1960s before the activism of the 60s somewhat civilized the country. So now you don't talk about felling trees and Indians. You say it more politely. But the fact is the United States was at war right through the 19th century. On the side, it attacked Mexico, picked up half of Mexico, including where I'm living right now, Arizona, then starts the interventions all over the world. Don't have to run through them. It's a very violent history, almost without a stop. Well, it's always in defense, of course. Thomas Bailey, the author of that book I quoted, said, of course, all this was in defense. Everything is in defense. When Hitler invaded Poland, it was in defense against what he called the wild terror of the Poles. Uh, everything's in defense. When Britain conquered India, it was in defense. You know, every, everything's defense. That's it's kind of interesting. In 1947, when the U.S. was shifting from a sort of a side player in international affairs, Britain ran it, uh, shifting to running world affairs, the, there was a change in the name of what had been until then the War Department. It then became the Defense Department. Anybody with eyes open knew what that meant. End of any pretense of defense, now we're at war. As we were all along, but not at that scale. If I could turn to internal domestic U.S. policy for a moment, the other major phenomenon of recent years, alongside the the, the rise of radical anti-democratic right in the form of parts of the Republican Party, is the rise of a left-wing alternative on the left wing of the Democratic Party, as exemplified, I suppose, first of all, by Bernie Sanders, but also more recently by figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And it seems to have brought the Democratic Party to some extent further to the left. And in the course of the election last year, you were very strongly a supporter of the proposition that, that the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrats should unite behind Biden once he became the nominee. That, first of all, to defeat Trump, which you saw as an extremely important objective, but also perhaps that you, you, you believe that there really was a chance that some of those progressive goals might be achieved under a Biden presidency. We're right in the midst now of Congress considering whether or not it's going to pass these 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 investment bills in some form or another. How do you think that project is going from the point of view of those progressive Democrats? 
well, under the impact of the Sanders movement, Ocasio-Cortez and others who came in on the Sanders wave, lots of young activists, under their influence, Biden's programs have moved slightly back towards the kind of social democracy of the New Deal era, the kind of programs that somebody like Dwight Eisenhower would have been happy to accept. That's when the Republicans were still a political party caring about the country. Uh, so it's moving back towards that. But notice that it's blocked. It's totally blocked. Republicans are 100% opposed. They've established what they call a red line. The red line is you cannot raise taxes on the rich and on corporations. Trump's tax cut for the rich is one legislative achievement that can't be touched. Second, you cannot fund the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS can't fund it because if you fund the IRS, they'll go after tax cheats. And the tax cheats are the rich and the powerful. Just saw an example of that with the Pandora Papers that just came out. But that's just icing on the cake. So you can't fund the IRS because then they might stop the enormous trillions of dollars of robbery by the rich and powerful. And you can't raise taxes on the super rich and the corporations. That's the red line. Well, that's the Republicans, half the Senate. Uh, then take a look at the Democrats. There are what are called moderate Democrats. That means reactionary Democrats. Uh, one of them is the head of the Senate Energy uh, Committee. Uh, he has a Joe Manchin. He has a policy, stated it explicitly, it's the policy that's written by the ExxonMobil Public Relations Department. His words, no elimination, only innovation. Cannot reduce production of fossil fuels. If you can make up something new, it's okay. ExxonMobil and its associates and Joe Manchin, who happens to be the lead recipient of fossil fuel funding in Congress, which is a pretty substantial achievement since they flood Congress with campaign, with funding. But Manchin is the champion and he's their spokesperson. He's the swing vote, the moderate Democrat, which means the Democrats can't get it through. There are others, of course. And it's not just on killing the climate programs, it wants to kill everything. Uh, nothing should go through. So the budget, this is right and being debated right now while we're talking, but the very strong chances are that nothing remotely like Biden's program will go through. So the United States will continue to pursue the uh, reactionary neoliberal programs that have been a major assault on the population. You've got to fund the very rich in the corporate sector. When uh, Reagan and Thatcher talked about markets, they didn't mean a word of what they were saying. What they meant is 
markets for the working class and the poor, protectionism for the rich and the powerful. They want a very powerful state which intervenes radically to benefit the wealthy and the corporate sector. And that's why you've had a move during this period towards radical inequality, massive robbery of the working class. When Thatcher said there is no society, she meant there's no society for you, working people. You don't have a society. We smash up labor unions. We break down other associations. You're on your own. But the rich have plenty of society. The United States Chamber of Commerce, Business Roundtable, Trade Associations, American Legislative Exchange Council, which rams through business-friendly legislation at the state level, all kinds of rich, complex society, and a powerful state behind them to make sure to intervene every time they get into trouble. Uh, the United States has what economists sometimes called a bailout economy. It started with Reagan. Uh, before Reagan, the financial industry was controlled, regulated, no, no major crises. But Reagan deregulated it. Immediately, you started having financial crises and bailouts, huge bailouts, one after another, uh, each worse than the last. And it's not just bailouts. The point is that the bailout economy is a tacit government insurance policy. It even has a name. It's called too big to fail, meaning if you get into trouble, the friendly taxpayer will bail you out. That means cheaper, lower, uh, cheap, higher credit rating, better access to cheap funds and loans, ability to carry out risky, profitable investments. You get into trouble, just turn to the powerful state and they'll take care of you. Uh, the IMF had a study a couple of years ago in which they investigated the profits of US, big U.S. banks. They found it was about the same as the government insurance policy. So yes, Thatcher and Reagan want a very powerful state, protectionist, plenty of society for the rich, heavy intervention to support the rich in the corporate sector. Everybody else is out on their own. Okay, That's called neoliberalism. Better name for it is what I quoted from the head of the United Auto Workers one-sided class war. It seems that that sort of socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, particularly in the United States, is embedded in what, what one might call a failed system, but maybe it's a deliberately failed system, a set of constitutional structures which are very often anti-majoritarian, um, which, which allow vast sums of money to sweep through the political system and influence it, which have other elements such as uh, lifetime appointments to an extremely powerful Supreme Court, other things like gerrymandering at the congressional level, um, a whole range of things, some of which you can chart all the way back to the founding of the country in the, in, in the late 18th century in a constitution which perhaps hasn't been updated to reflect modern realities. But put all together... 
they seem to make it incredibly difficult, even perhaps to achieve moderate change. A relatively centrist Democrat like Joe Biden uh, has a program for government. He ha- he won the presidency. He has a wafer-thin majority in the Senate. He has a pretty small majority of the Congress, but he has the majority. He has the support of the majority of voters in the United States. And what you're saying is he's not going to pass these measures. He won by 7 million votes, but barely squeaked through because of the strange complexities of the American political system. If uh, a few tens of thousands of votes had shifted, Trump would have been elected with a loss of 7 million votes. In fact, if you look back, take a look back at previous elections, Republicans always lose the popular vote, but they run, they win the election. Especially take a look at the states, mostly Republican. Most of the House of Representatives uh, right now happens to be Democrat, but it's usually Republican with a minority of votes. Uh, You mentioned gerrymandering and going back to the founders. Jerry was one of the founders. It's named after him. Uh, In the 18th century, the American Constitution was a very progressive step compared with Britain, continent, and others. In fact, Continental leaders like uh, Metternich, the Tsar, King George III of England, were frightened that this republicanism, growing in republicanism, meant not not today's republicans, just meant the republican ideas of a people's rule. That this idea would be uh, a dom- would knock the dominoes over. It would threaten authority and order all through Europe, uh, and they were very concerned about it in the, 19, in the 18th century. But if you take a look at the dominant legal doctrine in the United States, the one they teach in law schools, the one the Supreme Court abide, claims to abide by, it's textualism, originalism. We have to try to figure out what the words of the Constitution meant in the 18th century. That has to be the law. Sheer insanity. Who cares what a bunch of rich white slave owners could have wanted 250 years ago? But that's the legal doctrine. And of course, it's, it's picked because it serves deeply reactionary purposes. You go back to what rich white slave owners thought in 250 years ago. You want that world? Well, maybe some do, Uh, but uh, it's a good way to be deeply reactionary and pretend to be supporting the Constitution. And it's worth remembering that no American president abides by the Constitution, none. Very simple to show. Take a look at the Constitution, which you're supposed to worship, but not read. So read it. Take a look at Article 6. It says straight out, treaties entered into by the United States government are the supreme law of the land, and every elected official, every official must abide by it. Well, the main treaty in the post-World War II era is the United Nations Charter, supreme law of the land. 
take a look at the UN Charter, Article 2, Section 4, four the threat or use of force in international affairs is criminal. A few exceptions which are irrelevant. Which US president has not resorted to the threat or use of force? I can't think of one. So they're all uh, undermining the US Constitution. Well, there is a class of people called international lawyers whose job is to show that words mean the opposite of what they say. So you can find international lawyers who will explain to you that it's the opposite of what the words say. But the words are very clear. See if you can find anyone in the United States. I mean, you know, there's a handful of people, maybe a couple of others, who say that every president is violating the Constitution, which they are. Does anyone care? I mean, when Obama addresses Iran and says, all options are open, meaning we can attack you with nuclear force if we want, he's violating the Constitution. Okay, anybody care? No. That's called law. There's nice mottos that go way back saying law is a uh, uh, spider's nest, which is strong enough to capture the poor, but it lets the rich go through. You have been a, a strong defender of some of the principles uh, enumerated in the in the American Constitution, whether or not they have actually been been followed in the years since since the Constitution was written is another matter. But I was thinking about you were such a strong advocate of free speech, going back to the the Robert Forisson case in the in the nineteen seventies in in France, and I think it's fair to say that that it's one of the values that 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 you value most highly in American society. And I was I was interested. You were one of the the signatories to a letter to Harper's Magazine, which got a lot of attention last year. And it was it was decrying attacks on freedom of speech, definitely from the authoritarian right, but also suggesting that there's a problem on the progressive left too. Could you tell me what you're seeing there that causes you to think that that threat might be serious? Well, one of the good things about the United States, very good things, is that it's in the lead internationally in uh, formally protecting freedom of speech. Incidentally, that's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not the First Amendment. First Amendment, according to the First Amendment, the government can perfectly well throw you into jail for something you said. First Amendment doesn't bore that. In fact, freedom of speech became an issue in the United States in the 20th century, at first with dissents in the Supreme Court. Finally, in the 1960s, the court took, started taking, Supreme Court taking pretty strong stands in favor of freedom of speech. It's not historically true, uh, but, it, but they did take strong and I think appropriate stands. Uh, in contrast, Europe has laws that Stalin and Hitler would have approved. If you don't like what somebody says, the state can throw them into jail, fine them. So, I don't approve of that. Uh, I think we should have the current American standards of freedom of speech. You had some strong words about the Irish taxation system, uh, particularly as it applies to... Uh 
offshore companies. You described Ireland as a tax haven in your in your address to the IIEA. Um, what do you think we should do about it? Cancel it. Ireland is, for its own benefit, is helping rob poor working people around the world of tens of trillions of dollars, huge quantities. When, take the world's major corporation, first trillion dollar corporation, Apple, its headquarters are in Ireland, means it doesn't have to pay US taxes. One of many gimmicks by which the very rich can rob from the poor. Well, Ireland wants to be part of that, your choice. I don't, certainly don't approve of it. I suppose people see it as a dog-eat-dog world and nations or states do whatever they can to gain a competitive advantage. Can. Hitler would have greatly approved. It's one way for states to act. Germany did pretty well on it. Almost conquered Eurasia. Made some mistakes. Maybe they shouldn't have invaded Russia. They should have knocked England out first. Uh, you might go back and take a look and see. American planners, of course, from 1939, State Department, Council on Foreign Relations, were planning for the post-war world, major studies. And until Stalingrad and the great course tank battle, they, 1942-43, until then they pretty much assumed that the war would end with a U.S.-controlled world and a German-controlled world. Could have happened if the Germans had planned Operation Barbarossa, attack on Russia, if they'd planned it a little more carefully, uh, that might be the world we're living in. So yeah, when nations are out for themselves, that's what you find. That's why it takes, say, Britain, United, the former United Kingdom, became very rich. How? Well, it started in the Elizabethan era with piracy. Famous pirates like Sir Francis Drake were robbing bullion from Spanish ships, large part of British capital. But then it turned to slavery, the most vicious forms of slavery in human history, first in the British Caribbean islands, then the American South. Uh, that's why Britain pretty much supported the Confederacy. Uh, when they lost that, uh, Egypt conquered Egypt to large part for its cotton. Then India, same. Uh, then after, cotton was of course the fuel of the 19th century. So that's how Liverpool merchants and so on became super rich. Uh, then uh, England turned to the largest narco-trafficking operation in human history, uh, conquered more of India to try to monopolize the opium trade. Couldn't do it entirely. American merchants got in there and got a piece of it. So monopolized, uh, uh, heroin was one of the, probably one of the major commodities in world trade in the late 19th century. Purpose was for British gunboats to be able to smash into China, open up China by force, force them to take 
uh, opium, which they didn't, which the government didn't want, tried to block, so you could uh, force China to accept British manufacturers, which they didn't want. Uh, okay, so take a look at British wealth. Robbery on the high seas, punishable by death, a hideous system of slavery, narco-trafficking, very wealthy country. Okay. Not different elsewhere. Take France, second major country running the world. It's estimated that about 20% of France's wealth comes from the rich, the richest colony in the world, Haiti. Hideous system of slavery, brutality, exploitation. When Haiti finally won its independence, France, first of all, of course, paid off the property owners who lost their slaves. Britain, of course, did too, paid off the slave owners, have to, count, have to protect property. Uh, but also France imposed a very heavy indemnity on Haiti to punish them for liberating themselves for France. It stopped possible Haitian development. They didn't pay it off until the mid 40s 1940s. So yeah, what you're saying is right. That's what states do. Attila the Hun was doing the same thing. It's one way to behave. Well, that brings me to my final question, which is quite a big one in a way, because in your speech earlier on, you framed your, your opening words in the context of two profoundly existential threats to the future continuance of the of the human race and the planet, one being the climate emergency and global warming, the other being the continuing and perhaps increasing prospect of nuclear war between two nuclear powers, presumably or possibly the United States and China might be might be those two powers. And 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 given what you've just described, which is a a history of untrammeled power built on the bones and the graves of the oppressed and the dispossessed. Um, what, in your view, is the possibility of the human race avoiding either or both of these twin catastrophes on which the clock is ticking increasingly loudly in both cases? The clock is indeed ticking. There's the famous doomsday clock, which is a brief assessment of the state of the world. During the Trump administration, it used to be minutes. How minutes? many minutes are we from, from midnight termination? Trump administration, the analysts abandoned minutes, moved to seconds. We're now 100 seconds to midnight. I suspect next January may get closer. Is there a way out? Yes. We have clear, explicit, feasible answers to every single crisis that we face. Political leaders know them. They're on the table. Question is, will they be compelled to abide by them? We don't know the answer to that. That's in your hands, my hands, the hands of young people. Will they or won't they take the bill in Congress right now, moving towards a mild form of social democracy way behind Europe. Looks like it won't get through. If there was mass popular protest, might force Congress to pass it. And the same is true on every one of these issues. It's not going to come from above. 
if there is popular engagement, activism, dedication can happen. No limit to what can happen, but it's not going to happen by itself. Noam Chomsky, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Glad to talk to you. That's it for today. A special thanks to the Irish Institute of European Affairs for making this conversation possible. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and we'll be back very soon indeed. But do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks for listening.